Hi, this is Eric Gurna, President and CEO of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. Hey there, podcast listeners. This episode of Please Speak Freely is sponsored by Developmental Studies Center. Developmental Studies Center is a nonprofit educational publisher dedicated to children's academic, ethical, and social development. Since 1980, they've been developing school based programs, and in 1995, they began to develop their after school work to help children develop capacities to think deeply and critically so they'll continue learning throughout their lives and strengthen their commitment to such values as kindness, helpfulness, personal responsibility, and respect for others. I've been working with Developmental Studies Center for a very long time to help to support their after-school programs, and I'm pleased to endorse um, the, the family of, of out-of-school time programs by DSC, including After School Kids Lit, a K-8 program made up of 180 amazing children's literature books and a guide for each that follows a five-part process that builds comprehension, vocabulary, a love for reading, and a strong community, as well as After School Kids Math, a K-6 program that builds confident math learners through cooperative games and activities that accompany math-related children's books. And the latest addition to the family is After School Kids Science, a hands-on interactive program for grades 3 through 5 that allows children to roll up their sleeves, experience science, and walk away thinking science is cool and I can do it. I can't say enough about what a joy it is to work with DSC. They really believe in building community by giving children many opportunities to talk to each other and to work together, and they believe in supporting leaders with materials that were developed with the needs of after-school leaders in mind. You can learn more at kidsafterschool.org. That's kids with a Z, afterschool.org. We'll also link to them from the podcast page. And I just want to thank DSC for sponsoring this episode, which features Carla Sanger, president and CEO of LA's Best, an organization that has used uh, after-school kids lit, kids math, and kids science over the years and had great success with it. If you or your organization might be interested in sponsoring an episode of Please Speak Freely yourself, just go to our webpage, developmentwithoutlimits.org, and click on podcast, and there's information there about sponsoring. It's uh, quite affordable, and you reach a really dedicated uh, group of listeners who really care about education and youth development. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Carla Sanger. Welcome again to Please Speak Freely. This is Eric Gurna, and I'm here with Carla Sanger, the president and CEO of LA's Best After School Enrichment Program. Welcome, Carla. Thank you so much, Eric. It's been a long time to be able to do this, and I'm yes. really happy to do it. I'm really psyched to finally be able to do it. And, um, you know, it's funny because I've been, uh, I've had on various promotional things for the podcast that, you know, uh, current and future guests include Carla Sanger. <laughs> and I say, I got to interview her pretty soon, or I got to take her off the flyer. But, um, but really, I mean, um, you know, I should say in, in full disclosure that, that you and I are very close and have known each other for a lot of years. And um, I worked at LA's Best several years ago, and it was um, a transformative and formative experience for me, of course, and something that I carry with me all the time. Um, and that's why I've been wanting to talk to you. So thanks for... Thanks for doing it. Well, thank you. And you had quite a legacy as the first director of staff development yeah, that we ever had force. in the history of LA's Best. That's right. Um, so, gosh, uh, there's so much to talk about. And like I was saying before we started, this is the first uh, Please Speak Freely I've done where I have zero notes. I usually have at least a couple of notes in front of me. 
Um, but you you have been president and CEO of LA's Best since it started in 1998. 88. 88, sorry. And you just had your uh, 20- 25th oh, anniversary going into our 26th year. 25th anniversary, yeah. So um, you've seen not only the growth of, growth of your own program from a few um, public elementary schools to currently, is it 180? 194. 194. 194. Wow. Um, and that's got to be- 200. That's more than half the elementary schools in LA? It's, uh, it's not quite at half yet, but it will be. So you've seen the growth not only of your own program, but the growth of this whole um, field, um, not necessarily that it started 25 years ago, right. certainly, but that it's grown quite a bit and the funding has grown and everything. Absolutely. So I, and, and I know that you're engrossed in, in a lot of different issues about after school and education, but um, I guess I want to start off by, by asking you, what are you thinking about the most these days? I'm thinking most about how... Different after-school programs clearly have uh, different goals and philosophies and resources, and uh, it's cliched to say, but true, when you've seen one after-school program, you've seen one after-school program, because they are so different. But I think what is common to all the after-school programs of quality, however anybody defines quality, is how engaged the students are, whether they're elementary school students, whether they're middle school students, whether they're high school students, in what's happening every single day in the environment with those children. So, but what do you mean by that? You think that all after-school programs that have the same level have the same level of engagement across programs? I said when they do, when they when have they that do. quality, yeah. that's what they have in common. And I and, think that's the most important thing to look at yeah. in terms of what um, the after-school staff has responded to mm-hmm. um, in ways that have made this movement grow Mm -hmm. where they're most successful and where programs in whatever cities or whatever rural areas Mm -hmm. have grown they have grown and been successful because they've paid attention to the engagement of those kids Mm -hmm. and where they haven't um in my opinion uh is where you don't see the results that people have come to expect in after school programs for youth development so one of the things that i've been thinking about recently is why after school. And I want to ask you, for you personally, um, I know you, you spent time as a classroom teacher and you started a school in, in Columbia. I did, a long time um, ago. And if I'm not mistaken, directed child care for New Jersey. I did. I was supervisor of daycare services for the state of New Jersey. So what, why do you feel you've stuck with after school for so long? Um, and in particular, really asking, uh, why not work in, in formal education? Why not work on the regular school day? Once you're a teacher, I think you're always a teacher, whatever you do. But I think that the freedom and the flexibility and the independence you have um, or potentially could have running an after-school program is unlike anything that you could do in the regular school day um, in most environments. Obviously, there are environments that are going to give you more freedom. Mm -hmm. But the freedom that we have in the after-school field to be able to create the kind of environments that we think make sense for the support of how children learn and grow, um, I think is very different. Mm-hmm. But shouldn't we have that kind of freedom in the regular school day too? Oh, absolutely, of course. And I have always maintained that good after-school programs can be the tail that wags the dog as we train people who choose to become teachers in the regular school day, that no matter how prescriptive those days become in terms of what they have to accomplish by 10.30 on Tuesday morning, they're going to bring so much of the lessons learned in after school about connecting kids to their families, to communities, and to the school that's going to 
show up in the regular school day. There's been a, a great movement in the last few years to show how after-school programs can integrate more with the regular school day. Um, expanded learning time, extended day, whatever we want to call it. There's been, it, it seems to me like uh, a lot of it has been trying to prove that after-school programs can move the needle on school results. So after-school programs can improve um, academic performance as defined by tests or grades, or they can improve um, attendance at school even. Um, but I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get into what you think about the direction that a large portion of the field has been going in lately. Well, LA's Best has, has always been very transparent and very clear in what our values are in terms of what we do best and who's doing it and why they're doing it. And we believe that um, the model that we created in 88 has proof positive to show that it works. And it works in terms of keeping kids in school. Our kids are 20% less likely to drop out, keeping them out of crime, 30% less likely to be involved, or 30% involved in any kind of crime. Uh, That's pretty unambiguous currency. I'm not interested in increasing kids' test scores as the main focus of LA's best work. Never have been, and fortunately have a board of directors and an advisory board and a best friends board and a city and a state that supports our values. Now, that's not to say that we are disconnected or disinterested in the regular school because it's an education environment that's so important for all children. Anything we can do to influence that education environment, I think, is going to benefit all children. What I'm not interested in is aligning with the regular school day in such a way that it can be perceived as an extension of of the regular school day. That's not to disparage um, programs who choose as their goal to have remedial opportunities for children. That's fine. That's great. I think some children clearly benefit from remedial opportunities, but not at the expense of any opportunities to get in touch with the, the thoughts and the feelings of kids. And that's what I think we do best, and I think that's what's reflected in why we maintain such high attendance, why we maintain such low turnover of staff, and why we have become such a reliable presence in our communities. Because at the end of the day, Eric, I think that it's hard to dispute the fact that education is personal. It's individual, it's personal. And how do you get it to be personal if you don't have the time to get to know at a very profound level the children who are um, with you, what they like, what they're afraid of, what they're curious about, uh, particularly in elementary school, and that's really what my, uh, what my expertise is in. Um, there are arguable points for more, uh, perhaps, time in, in specific cognitive development uh, activities in high school, perhaps, but in talking about elementary school, I think there's nothing more important that we can do um, in the time that we have with these children which is a gift of time to me in terms of getting to know what these kids think and feel. Mm-hmm. And it's funny, you're talking about the gift of time because there's been a lot of conversation about time lately um, in terms of increasing the amount of time that, uh, that kids have or at least um, um, kids who are going to schools in economically poor neighborhoods have in school. Uh, so what that brings... What that ends up being in practice is, I think, one of the big differences 
between taking an approach of just increasing the amount of time in school and including some of the enrichment in that and the after-school program approach is mandatory versus, versus non-mandatory participation. Do you know what I mean? I don't think Do, anybody would argue with the what is equally as important as the amount. It's what are you going right. to do in that time? But there are very large philosophic differences about what people believe should be the what. Mm-hmm. Um, I am of the opinion, and I think it's reflected in certainly our work, and I think it's in reflected in, in the best work in this field, that the what has to encompass such a variety of opportunities for children to bring their voices into what's going on mm-hmm. that is so much more important than any kind of restrictive model that um, clearly is closer to teach to a test or prepare kids um, to show proficiency mm-hmm. in a certain area. Not that that doesn't have a place. I think cognitive development is a very, very important place of after school, but no more so than opportunity for social and emotional development in a context that's very, very emotionally safe and very responsive to listening to what the kids need and want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, it's, it's not that the social and emotional uh, growth is, is not cognitive. I mean, that's the, been the thing Absolutely. that's really gotten me these last couple of Absolutely. years. Everyone keeps talking about non-cognitive skills, right. such as right. um, they, they often talk about resilience and right. grit and all these things, as though those things have no cognitive component. Just, well, I, I just love the notion um, of a kid who once said, uh, in a very economically poor neighborhood, people think we're stupid. How many things can you do with 50 cents? Can you do 20? I can. Can you take care of a baby from the time that baby wakes up till the baby goes to sleep for five days? I can. How is that not cognitive? How does that not show um, the development of skills that are transferable to so many things, but that may not be able to be measured on any kind of test Mm -hmm. that determines whether this kid is proficient or not. To switch gears a little bit, um, you mentioned that uh, you have pretty low staff turnover. And one of the things I know about LA's Best is that's especially true at the level of um, management or whatever you want to call it, that there's a a core of of on-site program directors and of centralized staff who are you know, supervising and supporting whole clusters of school, schools and, and working with the, the program citywide that have been there for a really long time. Um, and a lot of those are part-time jobs, and some of them are full-time jobs. And, and still people have stayed in those jobs for such a long time. Why do you think they stay with LA's Best so long? I know why some of them stay, because we get it uh, responses reflected in surveys. Mm-hmm. They feel a sense of autonomy. They feel a sense that they have a certain amount of control over what happens every day, and they feel a sense of tremendous efficacy in that their efforts show results. Mm-hmm. They see transformations in kids. They see transformations in behavior. They get a lot of positive feedback from parents that say, before LA's best, my kid, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. They get it from teachers. They get a lot of feedback. And I think it's that opportunity of seeing your work pay off. There's a short distance between the, the uh, work that they do and the payoff that they get. Mm. And I can imagine how frustrating it is today to have the kind of accountability where your, what you as a teacher may sense is a transformation in a child is diminished 
by the test scores that come out that mm-hmm. say this child is below uh, proficient. Mm-hmm. Whereas our staff don't have that hammer over their head so that they feel a great sense um, that they individually make a difference and they feel good about that. A lot of uh, organizations are center around a sort of um, big personality, you know, the charismatic leadership sort of idea. Um, and there's all kinds of, you know, courses you can take to become a more effective leader and all of those things. Um, do, you, do you think, and I'm asking you this at a, at a particularly poignant time, right? Because it, it's I'm okay retiring. to talk about Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you're you're retiring yeah. this year and you've been in the role for going on 26 years. Right. Um, do you feel that LA's Best is one of those organizations? That's kind of a funny question to ask because it, it's sort of a setup for you to say no because I'm asking you, the, well, the leader of it. Well, let me tell you why it. the answer is no. And I yeah. think it is, it's, it's an easy no. Mm-hmm. From day one, I have never allowed myself to be the principal warrior. If I'm worried about something, I want my staff to be worried about it. So oh, you I said warrior. I thought you said worry. warrior. No, warrior. Warrior, One yeah. who worries. Like a worry ward. So, yes, because I want to hold no information from my staff. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes that's not um, what happens in big organizations, that staff are not as knowledgeable about what's going on at every level, good, bad, and indifferent, mm-hmm. as our staff are. Because, as I said, I don't want to be the principal worrier. I want staff worrying when I worry. And I also think that I have tried very hard, um, and I think probably what I've been best at, is hiring good people and getting out of their way. Mm-hmm. So that I think staff feel free in leadership roles, as do the site coordinator field staff feel free, to make huge mistakes. And God knows they've all made them. Mm-hmm. And I certainly have made my share of them. But there is a safety in making those huge mistakes, to know that um, you're going to learn the best from those mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to ever be in an organization that does the same year 26 times, that we try to be fresh, and I say fresh as the streets, every year. And to do that, you're going to have to take risks. And taking risks, by definition, means you're not always going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So I think that the climate, the culture of LA's best, which is, and I don't, I don't take that for granted. We work at that because mm-hmm. the culture is also a partnership with two of the largest monoliths in the state: the City of Los Angeles and LA Unified School District. So you have a lot of hoops to jump through to create that climate of safety from monoliths that traditionally are risk averse. And we've worked very hard to create that and to put a protective factor around it and warm blankets around that so that staff feel that freedom and safety. Mm -hmm. I think that's unusual. And I think it's the culture that I've built or tried to build or known enough that it was important to build Mm -hmm. or been too stupid at the beginning to know that uh, I couldn't do that. It's those protective factors including and not limited to creating a central division within LA Unified beyond the bell that is a protective factor for our vision and for our values. And I think that's what's going to ensure that LA's best uh, not only endures but prevails. Not a personality, but the culture that I've, I've hopefully uh, created. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of other organizations and a lot of other leaders. 
and and you see um, some of them being bigger personalities and more public per- people in the world, and some of them being quieter. Yes. And I'm just and I'm you know kind of wondering what you what you think about those different styles and and how it relates to your own. You know, it's interesting from day one because I've been in this field for so long, and I opened my first after school program in 1973. If you can imagine, in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, called mm-hmm. Mio Gut, my place. And at that time, there were folks who wanted me to be, if you can imagine, the glorious Steinem of after-school programs. I mean, to be out front, to be in the air, to be going around from city to city, and to be talking about this extraordinarily important movement. Not what I wanted to do. That's not who I am. I'm much more interested in knowing in my DNA the quality of a direct service that I'm putting my name and time and effort and blood and sweat and tears to so that anybody can go to one any one of our 194 schools at any time and see at least one wow they may see things that should improve but they're going to see one wow to say "Mm, that's amazing I want to do that I don't think I could do that if I were as um, visible as there are some who would have liked me to be through these years that's not however to say that there isn't an importance in taking everything we've learned and being part of a bigger national conversation in a more intentional way. And I am absolutely convinced that the next um, uh, CEO of LA's Best is going to do that in a much better way than I ever have. They're not going to be charged with building an infrastructure from the ground up. They're not going to be charged with building a board or a young professionals group to support it or primarily raising money they're going to be charged with taking the values that we know, not that we think, we know work, and moving them into a national agenda in, in fact, the social media, which I don't even use. I mean, I don't Twitter tweet. I don't even know what vines are. I don't know any of that stuff. But I believe that to be relevant, the next leader of LA's Best isn't going to have to worry about my personality because that person is going to take this organization in a direction that's very needed, but that's very different than what I've done for the past 26 years. But do you think about taking it outside of just LA's best? There's a generation of leaders. I mean, it's, all, it's always a sort of rotating door. But um, if you think about, like, um, Jeff Canada recently announced that he's stepping right. stepping right. down or out um, right. Right. to some degree, remaining right. on as president at right. Harlem Children's Zone. Um, there are others who will be probably making similar announcements um, before too long. Right. Just, just, I mean, sure. less people decide to stay. Because they're getting older. Because they're getting older. Yeah. Um, and it's often from organizations that they built, or in Jeff Canada's case, that he sort of grew. You know, the organization existed before he came along, but he grew it into national prominence. Right. Um, and I think that there's, a, there's something that comes from building something that gives you a certain um, passion and drive for it. And it's a very different thing to step into something that you didn't build. But my point is that the person, I believe, who steps into L.A.'s best will be building something brand new, Mm -hmm. will be building a new scope of work for the organization, Um, certainly not at the expense of what's already going on because that has to be maintained and the quality has to be preserved and protected at all costs. But there is the opportunity to build. I don't think anybody would take the job if they felt they were just doing um, more of the same. Mm -hmm. 
I don't think they would want it. I wouldn't take the job. I wouldn't hire me. And I, I, you know, I think that new skills are needed that uh, will will take this organization into another direction, but also will offset whatever groundswell there is for, um, in my words, corrupting the after-school movement to become something it was never intended to be and something that, in my opinion, it should not be. And what's that? And that is moving it into a direction where there is nothing more important that we do than increase the test scores of the children who are in those programs. Um, I don't buy that. Our whole philosophy has been there is nothing more important that we do than the effect it has on the child. And I maintain that throughout. And I do believe that we have to protect a balance of education, enrichment, recreation, and nutrition in all of our programs. And I'm afraid that balance, because of some funders and some government uh, policymakers um, who probably never been in a classroom, have decided that... Mm, we're not getting it done in the regular school day. Uh, the after school is the place where it's got to get done. It's slippery, though, right? Because no one ever steps up and says, all I care about is test scores. No, they people, certainly don't. People say, um, I care about academic achievement, and, and I care about the arts, and I care about physical health and mental well-being and all of those things. But the difference is when you go see the programs, what you see in many of them, not all, of those people who say that is sit down, shut up, and listen. Mm -hmm. That's what you see. And I find it interesting, for example, that there are certain programs in Massachusetts that have held very dearly a goal for articulating and aligning with the regular school day. And when you look very carefully at, for example, a recent study that was done of those programs, they are uh, showing results that are very unambiguous in very clearly stating that not only is there no significant difference after five years of implementation in terms of closing the achievement gap across the board, but there is also, in fact, harm that you find children who have more of an emphasis than other activities that engage their hearts and their minds, um, that you have children more tired in the regular school day. Well, that's certainly not a goal that anybody intended as a consequence of after school mm -hmm. to have kids more tired in the regular school day. Um, so I do feel that there has to be a response um, articulated nationally as to why successful programs do what they do and must continue to do what they do and must convince the funders, both in government and the private sector, to support what they do. Can, can we point people to that study? Because people may, may be asking if, if you're referring to a particular study that we can... I have no memory. I mean, of course we could. Uh, <laughs> sure. what, what is it, ABD? I mean, I'm sure you can find the reference to it. I can mm -hmm. find the reference to it. Okay. You know, well, we'll I, I read do. so few studies, but yeah. that one seems to have been buried. Yeah. It's very difficult to get your hands on it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got it. Um, and I think it's a very important study to look at because I think that we're learning all the time. It's not to say that the intentions of the Boston program were not valiant. It's not to say that these aren't people who um, have had every intention of involving the community in terms of art and music and all the other good things, except it didn't happen because there wasn't enough money to do that to the extent that lip service was given to it well, to do that. Well, I, I, I would be willing to bet that it did happen to some extent. Oh, I'm sure right? it did, be but not to the extent that showed, in my opinion, a balance. Yeah, 
of right. those activities for kids. But it's even bigger than that, though, too, right? Because when they when when folks talk about using the arts and showing that the arts have an impact on academic achievement or something like that, there's often the argument made for, um, well, we need to make sure that um, kids have eye exams because um, you know studies right. showed that if you have you know, eye exams and a certain percentage of the kids who get tested find out they need glasses and then they can see better and in that's class why they couldn't read. Yeah. and all of that. But, but it's off-putting to me because I don't want to have to argue for kids having eye exams because it will help them to be more successful in school. I think that kids should be able to have eye exams so that they can see for themselves in their life, period. I don't I want to have to argue for arts as a as a means as a to anything to, exactly. because I think it's, that it's for art's sake. I, I it should, they should have it as part of being a, a human being. I, and, and I, I feel like it's completely. really, um, it's so unpopular to talk like that, that I've been at meetings where I say something like that and it, it's just like a silence and then we move on. It's because it's following the money. When a funder says, show me how what you do relates to the goal. Then of course, I, I'll give you an example. I was at a meeting once in LA Unified at a time when they had 15 semi-autonomous districts. And one of the semi-autonomous district superintendents said, in LAUSD, we will have no bells and whistles in our after-school programs. And I said, could you give me an example of what you see would be a bell and whistle? And the superintendent said, absolutely. I was in an after-school program, a middle school program. They had dog grooming. This was with taxpayers' money. There was Absolutely. I watched it. It was almost 45 minutes, she said, of dog grooming. That sounds so That cool. is unacceptable <laughs> in after-school programs in LAUSD. And that's when I knew right then and there I had to create a central division with shared values because I thought dog grooming was one of the coolest things I've heard. Sure. It, it builds empathy. It's a marketable skill. It's, it involves tremendous cognitive right. uh, uh, development. Well, and also and, dogs are great. And dogs right? are great. <laughs> exactly. So, so that is an example of how the perception of anything that isn't in shorthand, sit down, shut up, and listen, is basically extraneous to the gift of time and what these children absolutely need and must do to close the achievement gap. Mm -hmm. And it's just silly. It's just silly. It reminds me, Alfie Cohn talks about, um, you know, there's, there's sit down, shut up, and listen, but then there's also, um, would you please take a seat, please be quiet, and now please listen to what I'm going to say, and Same that there's no, there's no difference. Same thing. Um, Same thing. But, okay, so everything has to be measured, right? We're in a, we're in a time when yes. everything, ha if, you, if you can't measure it, then it doesn't exist. People say all kinds of things. If, it, if you... Um, there has to be, I'm sort of bumbling for my words here, but... Yeah. Um, it's accountability. So every, everything has to be measured, and there's, there's great strides being taken to, show, to be able to measure what some people call soft skills or social-emotional yeah. skills. Um, and so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of conversations amongst people who I feel like-minded with about the goals, right? That, it's, that the goals might be um, supporting holistic growth and all mm -hmm. of that. And they're talking about how to measure those things to be able to show that some programs work or that certain activities are effective and show it to funders. But is there a place in the conversation for arguing that we shouldn't be having to spend so much time measuring? Well, I think accountability is important. I don't ever want money grabs where organizations can take money with no accountability whatsoever for um, what's going on in those programs. I'm a taxpayer. I, I don't want my taxes 
going down the tubes. Mm -hmm. I want to know that there are results. And I think accountability um, is important. I also feel that so many of these uh, uh, ways that programs are evaluated have become autopsies. And they've become looking at this this causality that's never going to be there Mm -hmm. um, directly in terms of what is the gold standard of evaluation for most programs. Um, I think that it's it's so interesting to me what the charter school movement in its most successful iteration has done to influence this kind of evaluation of after-school programs because so many of the charter schools, uh, at least in Los Angeles, have compacts with parents where in order to get your child into the charter school, whether it's a random drawing or not, the parent must agree to have a certain involvement with the program. And Mm -hmm. that's terrific. I have no argument with that at all. That's terrific. That's for parents who choose to do that and who can do that. Well, after-school programs are for all. After-school programs are for parents who don't necessarily choose um, to be involved for whatever reasons or can't be involved because they're taking three buses to get to three different jobs or because they are, frankly, dysfunctional. And I find that the causality of when folks say, gee, this charter school has been open till 6 o'clock, you've got credentialed teachers there till 6 o'clock, and look at these test scores and look at this direct line to achievement, isn't this wonderful? Why can't after-school programs show the same thing? I think the, the answer is self-evident. After so many years of, of leading Ellie's Best and advocating for these things, do you ever get tired of having to convince people of something over and over again? Yes and no. I kind of like the position because I feel so strong about it, and I feel that I can sit with a billionaire who's made a great deal of money selling insurance and creating development projects, but that billionaire doesn't have my experience in the classroom, doesn't have my experience in the communities, and doesn't have my experience with service. So I kind of enjoy that, and I don't always win. But I do believe that I try very hard to transfer the meaning of that experience. Um, So no, I don't get tired of that. Mm -hmm. Um, What I get tired of is um, the, what I refer to as the billionaires who know best, who really feel um, that they're so right without either the evidence or the experience or the background or the knowledge. But just because they made so much money that they feel an entitlement to be right about an issue that I so believe they're wrong about. Mm. And that's, I feel like that's something that's been frustrating a lot of people, and there's a growing movement right now, um, not, just, not in after school, but in the larger education community on the, on the left, I mean, really, to, um, to speak out against high-stakes testing, to speak yeah. out against um, standardized testing to some degree, um, to see, speak out against standardization of curriculum, um, what many people see as the, including myself, as a move towards privatization, right. toward, partially coming from a sort of twisting of what charter schools started out, the, what the idea was intended to be and what it's become. Um, and one of the things that I've been curious about is if and when um, folks from the after-school field who are very like-minded with um, those coalitions that are that are beginning and, and moving that movement forward 
if people in the after-school field are going to join forces and stand up and be counted as being anti-standardization and anti, um, at least anti-high-stakes testing. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear because there's following the money. And there's the fear. It's tough to throw the billionaire out with the bathwater. It's <laughs> tough. It's tough because you're going to lose a lot of money now. But I think that's why it's so important for organizations like LA's Best who have the protective factors around them to speak out. I would love to see strong branded organizations like Teach for America move their efforts into recruiting the best and the brightest to stand side by side with your community folks in after school programs because I believe they'd get it once they were there. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I think they'd find a lot easier time feeling successful in a sense of efficacy working with communities and children in after school programs than many of them seem to have felt in the regular school day mm -hmm. and that stay longer mm -hmm. instead of for many a tour of duty. So I think that the more aligned organizations can become in saying what so many people really believe, in their heart of hearts, I think so many really believe that. Yeah. But there is a fear factor that if I don't give actions to the funders who drive the agendas, I'm not going to get the money. Mm -hmm. And I could ultimately go out of business. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that true? Like, do you feel like if you, um, if you speak out uh, against certain policies in education, that funders that you have that are funding you to do an after-school program, which might really have nothing to do with the thing that you're speaking out against, you know, specifically, if you, you might speak out against a specific high-stakes test that's being used as a graduation yeah. requirement, right? Um, and you're getting funded to run an after-school program that really doesn't have anything to do with that test. But do you put your relationship with that funder at risk if that funder has also been on the side of... I think you'd be terribly naive to think that you wouldn't at mm -hmm. some level, that I think the political behavior of funders is not a lot different from the political behavior of elected officials or others that mm -hmm. weigh their friends and weigh those who think in the same ways. Um, now, in, in Los Angeles, it's very different because I do believe there's enough money in Los Angeles to do anything. It's just find it. And it's just if you, you lose one funder, you find another one. Mm -hmm. that's, that's very easy to say in a city where there's that kind of wealth. Um, obviously, there are places where if the only funder in town is the person who ascribes a set of, of um, beliefs that are inconsistent it's, it's, it's a very delicate dance to be able to do what you know is right and not to offend and um, turn off that funder. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me like the, the, the solution to that dysfunctional dynamic is um, that the funding should be increasingly public funding then, right? Of course. I mean, is that the direction you think things should move? I mean, you, I you certainly get a combination of public and private I don't funds. ever want government to be off the hook for after-school programs, right. ever, because I think it's one of the things they do best, and I think it's one of the things that they have to continue to do, and hopefully will we'll, um, only uh, um, increase the amount of funding so that every child has that opportunity who needs it um, from subsidized funding. But I also don't believe that government alone should do this. I profoundly believe in public-private partnerships, mm -hmm. and I do believe that um, that both. Um, I, I think that organizations are going to have to find ways to tap into individual donors and small business donors 
and not just the foundations that traditionally have supported grants and efforts in the private sector. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why is the individual donors and the small businesses I where think they it's easier to convince individual donors and small business owners um, to the values proposition than those foundations who behave like venture capitalists and already have a preconceived set of ideas for whatever reasons mm-hmm. about how um, children best learn. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, the the other kind of funder that comes to mind is the um, the funder that's maybe giving very small grants but treating them as though they require they're, – they're larger. Like, for yes. instance, um, I was yes. recently speaking with someone who was telling me about a – uh, it was a couple thousand dollar grant from a bank, and they were demanding all kinds of reporting oh, and making yeah. sure that the funding reaches the, the most neediest of the young people, even though 80-something percent of the young people in the school district are qualify for free and reduced lunch, and et cetera. So here's what you're going to need to do. Here's the dance that you're going to yes. need to do in order to get this $2,000 grant. And it seems like there's just no understanding of the the, the work that, that – the nonprofits have to do to to manage right. the well funders is, are as variable as after school programs so you're yeah. going to have that and then you'll have others that um, uh, that would behave very differently but mm-hmm. I think that funding has changed in my lifetime that foundations used to identify organizations that they felt were doing a good job mm-hmm. based on results that they could understand and that were based on values that they supported. Now I find more and more funders telling you what to do as opposed to, I like what you're doing and I want to give you uh, money for it. Mm -hmm. That's a change. That's a change in the dynamic, I think, of grant making. Um, I don't know why. Uh, I just think it's changed. How do you feel about it? And uh, Well, obviously, you don't like anybody (laughs) telling you what to do and putting Uh strings on the money they give you. Yeah. But you learn to play. Uh And you learn to uh, figure out how to make it a win-win so that they get what they want and you get to do what you want within the funding terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. But it's complicated. And anyone who thinks that politics are not involved in that is just naive Mm -hmm. because they're very, very much involved in that. And that's that's part of... Actually, if I ever wrote a book after L.A.'s Best, part of it would be um, the politics of of after-school management because Mm -hmm. it's, it's... as much about understanding those dynamics and knowing when to hold them and when to fold them and how important those relationships are um, as it is to know about um, all the dynamics of youth development and ages and stages and and how to manage a program and how to lead a program and all that Mm -hmm. because the the politics are important to be able to to, uh, thrive and grow and expand and serve the children that need to be served. Do you ever think about what it might have been like if you'd uh, if you'd remained in the classroom? You know what? Sometimes I want to go back in the classroom. Yeah, I want to just do that uh, because I just see folks that should not be in the classroom. And so you just want to I replace them? I just want to replace <laughs> them. I just want to say, you know what? Why, why don't you uh-huh. you know take the day off? Let me take this class for the rest of the day uh-huh. because I have the arrogance that I had when I was twenty that I can teach anybody. Uh-huh. That I had forty five kids in a classroom. They had no social promotion in Baltimore at that time, so I had children who were 11 to 14 in a mm. sixth-grade class, mm-hmm. and I had them all reading at grade level by the end of the year. And it wasn't I am the great I am. It was because I stayed till 6 o'clock, because I knew what each kid was interested in, because I had the freedom to use Ebony Magazine as a textbook. I threw out the textbooks. They were boring as hell to these kids, and uh, used Ebony Magazine as the textbook, and we used the advertisements 
as the first um, kind of text that the kids were interested in reading. Because mm-hmm. I watched, I said, flip through these. I want to walk by and see what, where, where your eyes stop. And they stopped at the advertisements for hair products. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the 60s here. So this was a time when I saw they were interested in the hair products, I bought the hair products. Mm-hmm. Now, you can imagine I could be fired today if I did anything like that. I think there was <laughs> lie in some of these products. I mean, it couldn't have been more harmful. Right. And yet, that's what engaged these kids because they were interested in straightening their hair. So what could be more scientific than doing something that responded to their curiosity to see if it worked or not? Mm-hmm. But they had to read. And that was what motivated, motivated and energized these kids in Baltimore, all economically poor kids that were all black in this particular classroom, and that's what got them started in reading. Mm-hmm. I couldn't do that today. Well, not in a public school, at least, no, right? I'd be fired. Yeah, yeah. So, what, what do you think? Why do some people? Um, some people can be great, great teachers and stay in the classroom. Yes. I mean, um, and What's some the people, difference? and some people want to do. Um, have a broader impact. Yeah. Right? I was going to say do bigger work, but yeah. that's really a kind of like That's already unfair. a judgment, yeah, yeah, because I don't think there's any bigger work than, that no. you can do. Right. Um, and I think that it's, it's a question of, um, of really timing. For some, it's an economic issue, obviously, that mm-hmm. they're going to go into administration because they mm-hmm. have a family to take care of, and, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a, an economic decision. Um, for others, I think I, I go back to Malcolm Gladwell's definition of really what makes a good teacher. I think it's with itness. Mm-hmm. I loved that term because it's so relative. And with itness to 45 black kids in Baltimore may be very different from with itness to a group of Hmong children in San Francisco. It's what can you do to relate? to those kids. I don't believe you have to be black to teach black kids any more than you have to be Latino to teach uh, uh, kids from Mexico. But I do believe you have to have a sensitivity to those communities, to those cultures, to the understandings of how those people live every single day to be able to transfer meaning in content areas that you are responsible for transferring. The other thing is that when I was teaching, there was a lot more understanding in children's faces when they didn't get something. You could see instantly when they, they would show more affect in you what think, they didn't why, understand. Why is that? My theory is that it's television. That uh-huh. because kids see so much on television that goes over their heads that they don't get, they think you're not supposed to get everything that happens. Mm-hmm. Not in the classroom, not in a television show, not in a movie. I mean, the things that happen that you don't know what they're talking about or what they're doing. So there's a tolerance for the discomfort in what they don't know. Whereas when I was teaching, I knew in, in a nanosecond if somebody didn't get something and I would respond to it and review it and come at it from a different angle in a different way, trying connect, connecting that piece of information or that particular concept to something that the child could relate to because mm-hmm. I could see they instantly didn't get it. I don't think that happens in classrooms today. I think you see certain kids just glaze over and not show the teacher, I don't know what you're talking about, or I missed that point or I didn't get it. Do you find that to also be true with young adults who you work with on, on your team? I do, to the extent that so many of the young people we work with have not had opportunities to express their thoughts and feelings. That's our job. Mm. In our training, one of the most, I think, successful things LA's Best has done is to create the kind of training models that bring expression to folks who so often in their lives 
had subsistence language. Um, get your sister ready for school. Go to the store. Get me this. Get me that. Nobody said, what do you think about that today? Or what do you think about that in, in many of our homes? Mm-hmm. Not all, but in many. And I think when year after year after year, no one is giving you any um, voice to your thoughts or feelings, you start to feel, feel they're not very important. So why should I say anything? Mm-hmm. I, I really don't know if what I'm saying is, uh, is useful, valid, important, worth hearing, worth saying. And it's terribly, terribly important, I believe, in after-school programs, first and foremost, to give that experience of training, of listening and speaking to your staff first, Mm -hmm. who will then be able to transfer those kinds of opportunities for the children. And it's hard. It's hard. It's getting folks to talk who don't have a lot of experience talking. Mm -hmm. So you kind of dodged my question a little bit about that. like uh, just just about like um, I guess I, I was asking, do you ever wish you would have j- stayed in the classroom and not gone on to um, to run such a large organization and be so um, in the in the public eye? In no, that way? It, it's not either or. Yeah. Do I ever wish sometimes to be back in the classroom on a day or two? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Would love to do that, but I've never regretted this opportunity to affect so many lives and so many people and and transformation is the most exciting thing in the world. I mean, my God, there's no headier feeling than seeing adults who used to look down at the ground and now give television interviews um, who worked with you and seemed to feel that you had some influence in that or seeing the influence that they had on children who've come back after college to say, I never knew I mattered before LA's best. I never was good at anything before LA's best. So, no, that, that's too exciting um, an opportunity uh, because your reach is so much greater. Uh, but then, you know, reach also goes into the issue of why L.A.'s Best needs to um, take its learnings into a greater reach for the next 26 years. Mm-hmm. Not, not hopefully with direct service to children, but with its message and its learnings and its teachings. Well, Carla, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Please Speak Freely. It was absolutely my pleasure to be here. Whoa.